Welcome to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We're talking about disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. In this episode, Ariana Cano Gomez from the Nature Conservancy of Vermont talks with Bridget Butler, AKA the Bird Diva. Butler specializes in the art of slow birding or approaching birding in a way that prioritizes slowing down. They talk about how Butler's slow birding ideas touch on disability, race, and access to and love for Vermont's wild places. Let's listen. Hello everyone, my name is Ariana Cano Gomez and I'm the Marketing and Outreach Coordinator for the Nature Conservancy in Vermont. And I'm here today with Bridget Butler, also known as the Bird Diva. And I'm gonna ask Bridget to introduce herself before we get started. Yay, Ariana, thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to be here. So who am I? Where am I? I'm in Northwestern Vermont. Um, I own a small business called Bird Diva Consulting, and which focuses on doing uh, outreach and programming around birds, bird conservation. And I think I need to add to that like wellness and nature, like this nature wellness connection. I don't know. We're going to fine tune that at some point. Great. And well, thank you for being here and for being part of this conversation. I think we can. I can speak for both of us that we're both really excited to just dive in into some great examples of how we make nature accessible to all and how we think about everyone um, when we want to share the things that we love, protect, and conserve. So I am now going to ask you about, you know, your relationship with disability. Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't have a relationship with disability. I'm actually an able-bodied person. And so my awareness about disability within our community came through my work um, birding. I have a program called um, Slow Birding, which came about as a way to approach birding in a, in a way that was less competitive, um, less list-driven. And as I started to kind of fine tune what I was offering to folks, people started to come to me and tell me how this was helping them participate in something that they felt like they weren't a part of. There wasn't that sense of belonging or even um, an avenue into participating. And so from there, I really started to investigate things a little bit more to better understand what are some of the barriers that people have um, to birding and to nature, and how can I fine tune my work and what I'm offering um, to be more inclusive and accessible to um, people of all ability types. Yeah, I mean, this is this is such. I have so many questions about this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a nature oriented person myself, birding is a huge hobby that a lot of environmentalists, even people, you know, that are not necessarily in this field partake in. So mm. can you walk me a little bit, right, for those of us, including myself, um, to talk a little bit more about like birding and how slow birding might be different? Yeah, yep. So birding is a verb. Right. Like that's the first thing that we can start with. We can use birding as a verb, which really means that you are actively um, noticing birds, maybe bird behavior 
Um, and the traditional way of birding that is embraced by most of the birding community um, tends to be, I mean, what I call list driven. So the idea is that you go to a site, you walk through that place, and I'm going to intentionally say walk because we call them bird walks often. Um, and you try to find as many birds as possible, identify them, kind of record what you're seeing, and, and you move on to the next one. So there's always this, like, I need to see the next bird, the next bird, the next bird. And I did that for a number of years. You know, I, I've worked for Audubon um, centers all over New England and finally got into birding after feeling like it really wasn't for me. And the reason why I felt like it wasn't for me is because people were a little bit competitive and they were a little mm, snooty about their knowledge and they didn't want to tell you where this bird was or that bird was because they wanted to have it for their own list. So there was also that component to birding that really turned me off in the beginning. I came into birding because I joined a community of birders that was more open along those lines, um, more willing to draw you in, um, help you figure things out. But it was still very identification and list driven. And so I started to question, what do I like about birding? What do I value? Um, and really, for me, what led it led to slow birding was this need to understand bird behaviors and really to do that you have to slow down and stay in one place you can't always be looking for the next bird right so if you don't stay and spend some time with that robin or that song sparrow that you see or that unknown bird right can we leave it in that unknown place and just watch it anyways um you don't get a chance to see some really unique and special things and that's that's where it led to for me and the core piece of slow birding core practice and slow birding um, that i teach is using the sit spot method which is totally different than a traditional bird walk it's staying in one place allowing the birds and the wildlife to come back in around you and then noticing things and noticing things beyond what type of bird it is and trying to let go of that um, that need to write everything down, write all the birds down, get as many bird species as possible, complete the trail, go from this spot to this spot, and make sure you cover all the ground that you can. Um, and that's where it that's where it started from was my need to be able to experience bird behaviors and to slow down a little bit and and really be in the moment. And it's really blossomed into so much more. Yeah, and I, and I want to talk about that because I know that like inadvertently, right, so many other things have happened from this idea and this thought. Mm. And what I like about you talking about this is that slow birding sounds like it makes a lot more sense than like traditional birding, right? Because you're spent, it's, it's a lot more mindful from the way you're describing mm. it. So I want to ask you kind of like, what, what, are, what are these things that you referenced that, you know, came about because of this slow birding? path that you've taken yeah so i think the first thing that i realized in in approaching birding in this way um and it comes from and you've probably had discussions with people like this too i know pretty much probably every birder has where um you meet someone new um maybe you're not even on a, a bird outing and um and they you identify as a birder you're like yeah i really like birding i consider myself a birder and the first thing that the person does is they're like oh 
well, I'm not a birder, but, and then they go into this story about birds. So there's a whole segment of people out there that connect with birds and love birds and want to know more about birds, but there's this reluctance to like identify as a birder. And so I started to really pick that apart and try to figure out what is it that is keeping people from identifying as part of this community. And it was that there was this one track for how to participate, right? It's the, it's the walk, it's the listing and all of that. And so what I realized, first of all, where people were coming to me and saying, this is giving me permission to bird the way that I like to bird. And all of a sudden there was this sense of belonging for some of these people. And I, I think that was the biggest thing for me to be to begin with was how can we that question of how can I make birding more inclusive? And this was a way was to basically say to people, if you if you are noticing birds and you're getting joy out of it um, and it's sparking your curiosity, then guess what? You're a birder. You don't have to have binoculars and you don't have to have an eBird account and all these other things. Mm. So I think that was the the first um, kind of spark that went off was like, ooh, this is opening the doors to so many other people who want to really be a part of this community of people who love birds. I think the second um, thing that happened to me personally ooh, was they taught me to, um, to slow down and um, be in a space and um, let go of a lot of other things. So I think this mindful aspect, and I, right, like, I don't meditate, I don't do yoga. I mean, gosh, I really wish I would walk every day, but like in terms of having a practice, a mindfulness practice or a yoga practice, or um, I didn't have any of those things. But what I started to realize is that sitting, being with birds, opening up my senses was mindful and was a way to meditate. And I really started to lean on it as something other than something to do to improve my bird list or to just see birds. It became a way to take care of myself. Hmm. And then I started to hear from other people about that too. And this is where I like, I'm like, I get emotional because like yeah. you, you're not sure if people are going to grab onto this because it right. is a little different. It's a little bit off this this path that that everybody seems to be following i started to hear stories from people who um had been ill or injured and this practice freed them up um took some of the pressure off of um feeling like they couldn't participate in something that they loved you now i had um a friend, I'm going to call her a friend now. She started off as a client and um, she fell and broke her hip and broke her arm. Um, we had scheduled a time to go birding together with a bunch of her friends. She hired me to come to her property and take her and a bunch of her friends um, to bird on her property for her birthday. We had to postpone it because she had um, fallen and broken her hip. And when I showed up for the walk, she was still recovering and she had a broken arm 
and she couldn't go far from the house. And she apologized to me. She's like, I should have told you this, but I didn't want you not to come because we couldn't go birding. And I was like, what are you wait, like, wait, we can still go birding. Like it doesn't, we don't have to walk. And what was beautiful, what happened out of it is she had already started this practice of sitting in different spots in her yard. And what we decided to do was um, she and, her, and I and her friends picked spots that were like the hot spots in her yard. And then we figured out ways where we could get a lawn chair or get an umbrella and a lawn chair and set things up so that it was within walking distance of her home so she could sit and be with the birds. She said it really helped her with her recovery. Right. That was the, I mean, that was the other big light bulb that went off for me. Um, so I, I've just started a deeper dive to learn more, inform myself and start to change how I speak about my work so people can see and know how it's inclusive um, and is, you know, a way for people to continue to explore nature in a way that's really super comfortable for them. Yeah, and I, I want to put a pin on that part, that second part of how do we make it more inclusive? Because I want to dive mm. in a little bit more, especially from just not birding, but people navigating nature, right? Like in something that we do want people to have access to and feel comfortable and safe and welcome. But before yeah. we pivot into that, I was <laughs> going to ask you, right, because this all sounds great. And like, I'm just so surprised, pleasantly surprised about this experience and process, right? Something so um, kind of like mainstream as birding also led you into understanding other aspects of how you can do the same thing in a way that's more mindful and rewarding. Um, but I want to ask you, were there certain challenges along the way or like learning things that you have noticed because of this process that you were like, oh, that, that is a learning opportunity for me or mm. this happened and I should do this differently type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the first thing was making people comfortable with it. Um, I, a lot of folks looked at this to begin with as something that was um, a little bit weird, right? Like, oh, you're gonna sit still? Like, I don't understand that. Um, so I think the first thing that I had to figure out how to do was really explain things in a way that communicated, you know, what this practice was, why it was valuable, um, how it could open you up to a deeper skill set, even if you were like a traditional birder. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, I think there's a lot of um, looking at your own habits, um, right down to language. Like already in this interview, I've talked about shifting from saying, calling everything a bird walk. I mean, obviously slow birding is not always walking. It's sitting in place. Um, how do we des describe things differently? Um, bird outing um, instead of walk. The other piece was, I mean, thinking about where can I go with people? So, you know, the, the client that I had who, she had a walker and it changed the way that I looked at the landscape that I wanted to explore with people. Um, 
And the group that really helped me and is still helping me kind of um, assess my work and how I put my programming and my courses and things out there um, is Birdability. This is a non-small, non-profit organization that just started within the past two years. And what they do is they provide free information on how to make birding more accessible to all different body types, um, all different learning types, including folks that are neurodivergent, right? Like, all, like, and the minute I joined this group, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many barriers to participation. Yeah. And that's where it becomes really overwhelming. And you kind of just have to like do one thing at a time, like pick a couple things to change and um and and do those and do them really well and be open to um crashing and burning and and people not being comfortable oh being really uncomfortable and how do you get through that discomfort um messing up oof i've in in groups that are are really focused on this work oh i've learned all the words that we shouldn't be saying anymore, handicapped and um, oh, wheelchair bound and all of those things. And I've definitely said those in front of people and kindly been reminded that there are other words that we can start to use. So I think for me, it really started with like word choice is one. Um, how do I communicate? uh my programming in a way that shows people that it is open and accessible you know and they can choose for themselves they can read it and they can say oh this is all the information i need to see if this is going to work for me and then really doing the research and finding those groups that were going to support my learning and knowledge um about how to how to just make this shift and this change yeah, that, I mean, that's so powerful right there, like the mm -hmm. part around the discomfort, but then also people's like fear of making a mistake, right? As we try these new things, I think a lot mm -hmm. in this conversation about inclusivity or like making sure that we shift the barriers, right? Like completely transform them in a way that they are actually accessible spaces. Um, people get really hung up on this fear of like, I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to make a mistake. And I think yeah. that um, what's really great and hearing you talk about this is that you have this really successful, like wonderful, welcoming way of experiencing birds um, and that you didn't do it overnight. <laughs> you didn't like wake up and you were like, okay, I did it. <laughs> it works. It's all good. No, and, and I think it's... Um, it's also really being able to listen to other people right and stop that um narrative that you have in your brain of how things should be and how they should work and all of that um i know the first time that i used the birdability checklist so birdability has this checklist that you can download and bring to your favorite birding site and basically it's a, um, a way for them to gather information about places that can be accessible or could be more accessible with a little bit of support and work or funding um, and upload it to a map so that folks have a place to go to find sites that are accessible based on what their needs are. And the first time that I used that checklist, I was like, oh my gosh, 
am seeing this place that I love to come birding that I thought through my able-bodied lens was going to be perfect. Mm, no, like something as simple as bathrooms. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was just like, and I thought that this place would be fine because it had a building and, and all of that, but it wasn't. And the doorways were too narrow and, and the, the, the path from the, the, um, the the parking to the the main trail there was like a, a big muddy like dip and i was like there's no way that someone who's using a wheelchair could you know navigate this it just kind of really blew my mind um thinking about the noise level um thinking about personal safety and all the lenses that you can see a space in terms of your own personal safety and comfort um so it was a really great exercise for me to to kind of expose my own blinders yeah I, so okay so i want to now shift right because <laughs> we're opening up into just you know so much of what you're saying is not exclusive to birding like we see mm -hmm. it everywhere everywhere like i you are talking and i'm like yes the outdoor sports world like i have experienced that just how how challenging it can be even as an able-bodied individual to feel welcomed or included or safe. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also the layer of these uh, places that are trying certain things, right? Uh, and, and really now seems like a good opportunity more than ever because we can't fix the past and right now is what we have uh, to be thoughtful of like okay what you know where should we go as environmentalists where should we go as outdoors mm. um i read something recently about university of vermont did a study that throughout you know like peak pandemic so the past few years people resorted to nature more than ever and it was a mm. a place that um gave people a lot of you know something to do well because we were locked down in quarantine but also just again going back to the need that we have of connecting to nature being outside smelling the fresh air and I want to talk about you know like because we're both environmentalists right you have a background mm -hmm. in the environment world um and I love nature <laughs> I think that's like <laughs> the bare minimum that anyone needs to be part of this crew um you know like what do you think are the biggest obstacles for people with disabilities to fully access the outdoors and let's oh. keep it right <laughs> and i and i want this conversation to be a lot around like you know like what can we do better and i say that mm. as, you know the rep you know representative or an employer of the nature conservancy vermont because i know that we've done some things but there's yeah. so much room to grow for everyone yeah um i think this goes back to that baby steps type of thing um and you know in vermont you think about i when you yeah baby steps because when you start to think about it you're like oh my gosh there's so much how can we make everything accessible and vermont has mountains like how's that going to work how do we get people down to the brooks and the waterfalls and the salamanders in the wetlands and the you know like all of a sudden you're like oh my god it's so insurmountable but they're right so baby steps 
And I think first is like finding who your allies are in this, like who's in your community, who has the knowledge, because I don't have the knowledge. I don't know what challenges folks that are disabled are coming up against. Um, so finding those partners that can give you that type of information and that type of background to help you kind of then transform your work. So the baby steps piece, I think really too starts to get at how do we communicate with people? Okay. And so, right, if you're offering programs already, which right TNC does, and, and I do too, like we wanna get people out on the land. So I think one of the easiest ways to do that is really to start to fine tune how we describe what we're going to be doing together. We can't make every single walk accessible, but we can start to change how we describe walks so that people reading about them can choose for themselves whether it fits for them. And I don't think we do a good job of that right now. So I'm still learning how to do that and to describe things. And it, you know what? It takes a little bit more work because you're not talking to the people. You're not talk, you're not trying to talk to your constituents already. You're not trying to talk to the birders or the hikers or you know the the insect lovers that already know how to get out on things and know what your product is you're trying to reach those people who want to have a connection with nature but don't see themselves in these groups yet the the people that are like oh well i'm not a birder kind of thing right so it, i think it kind of starts there and we can back yeah go ahead well, I was going to like chime in and say that I yes. think from the perspective of like, you know, like, and I think a lot that, about this as an organization, right, that we have a mission to like save our climate crisis and kind of address our biodiversity loss. And the way we often do that is through these outings and the need, the inherent need for these organizations to recognize that our formula of just inviting birders to go out birding with the birders is not going to work in order for us to meet these goals that we have, right? Like this is like an all hands on deck situation. Mm. So there's that like from the, you know, I'm speaking from the objective of organizations is to like, what's in it for me? But then there's the other part of like, if you really love these places and hobbies and things like that so much, like just go the extra mile to make it really accessible to all and share it with people. So I just wanted to chime in because I think- yeah. We just do like what's easy and comfortable, but when you tie it into our actual environmental goals, like folks, we need everyone. <laughs> like everyone yeah. needs to be out here enjoying these things, or else um, we'll, we'll, we won't succeed. Yeah, and that's about meeting people where they're at, right? And that's about listening to what other people have to say about why they're not able to access nature or what are the barriers to them accessing nature? And then that means a huge shift in how we think about planning our programs and our, and our outreach. And I, so I think the first thing is just taking what you already have and thinking about how to communicate better about what it has to offer. Um, and then you can go through the whole kind of assessment of, are we offering enough? 
different types of experiences that different people can see themselves in. Like, can I see myself doing that, right? And hopefully if you're explaining it well, people will be able to see themselves in that. And then trying to offer like, great, what's the continuum of accessibility? Because there's so many different ways to think about it from, um, you know, from folks who are neurodivergent or from people of, of color who maybe don't feel safe in the outdoors. How do we do a better job um, with introducing them to places that they will feel safe? What does that look like? What does that feel like? I just, and I keep asking those questions over and over again of other people and people that I come into contact so I can better understand that. And then I think trying to, sorry, can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> just gonna wait a second. What is it? It's uh, the dump, the not dump truck, uh, trash truck coming down the street. Okay, so the pin, I, we we're gonna say, uh, I was gonna say, and then the P, it's really about, okay, I know where I'm at. He's gonna come back, I'm like, they're gonna go down to the, I'm on a dead end street. So it's like, <laughs> go down to the dead end, get so-and-so's garbage and come back. But typically they back down, so that's why there's the beeping. And maybe it won't be so loud now. Okay, well, let's try it. Okay. It reminds me of when I used to do stuff with channel five and channel three and like the airplanes would fly over while we were outside, like recording stuff. And they'd be like, hold, we got a hold. Um, okay. And then I think the next big piece is this intentional planning for people with a specific type of disability. So if you wanted to make things um accessible for people with mobility issues what would that what would that look like where do we need to go right so and that takes more time and thinking and consideration and probably that partner again right that maybe knows a little bit more about that community of people and what their needs are yeah and how important it is to like build these relationships authentically because i think oftentimes people, like what you were saying, it's baby steps, but we also have to acknowledge that there's so many organizations that are already doing this work, right? So instead of reinventing the wheel, like how do we show up as partners and allies and say like, hey, we're here to listen. Like, what can we do? What can mm -hmm. we do? What do you need from us? How can we support you? Um, instead of just like, you know, starting your own formula in your own corner of the world without involving the people that you're actually hoping to serve. I think that you know, it, what it's that performative about. piece. Yeah. <laughs> that's that performative piece. And you and I have discussed this of, and that's a fear, right? You want to do right. the right thing, right? but you don't want to be performative. So how do you get there? And it right. does take time. This is the same thing that we do in conservation. It takes time to build relationships, to change and to take action when it comes to conserving land. You can't just go out there and be like, oh, it's done. We bought this big chunk of land and everything's right. right it doesn't, right. It, you may want it to happen like that. And I feel like there's also all of this pressure because of climate change and you know loss of um, biodiversity, right? That we feel this pressure to get it done right away, but we can't do it without relationships relationships take time and um and we have to come from a, a genuine place 
in order to build a really good relationship. Yeah. And, you know, how do we continue building on that? Right. I know that in the past, like the Nature Conservancy has put in an effort to build accessible boardwalks. And yes, they're successful, they're good, they benefit. But a lot of these, you know, weren't necessarily the best time example that we should be using for the next model, right? And like our I, goal and what I hope that we can do as an organization is take that moment to sit down and listen like, okay, how do we improve on this? How do we mm. build what we attempted and learn from that mistake or learn from that opportunity to do better? Because even, you know, like it goes back to the example of like, you didn't think of slowboarding overnight. Um, and there's, I think there's a lot of fear in that. And I hope that people, you know, if, if there's something to take away, at least for me, in this conversation is a lot of like, how it is scary, it is really uncomfortable to dive mm. in as an able-bodied person to try to, you know, figure out how to be a better human or more human. Um, there's a lot of fear that we will mess up and that it'll feel uncomfortable. But that's literally the point, <laughs> right? right? Like that right, right. there, it's like, why it's so hard and, yeah. and that it's okay it is so okay um as long as you take the moment to sit and be like all right this is how i'm going to do the next thing better and and I, I i really hope that it can be you know like extrapolated into the organizational level and see more groups mm. that you know and i, I want to ask you this too as like you know you're the perfect kind of person because you can see it from these two perspectives of the slow birding you know mm. utilizes um nature as a way as an individual what you know and i asked that question of like what more can we do but according to you like where you know where should we go as organizations like where should we um start having more of these conversations like how do we mm. bring people in to think about it the random you know mainstream birder out in the middle of vermont how do we get them to wake up and be like you know what we should do this Oh, I know it's not an easy question. Oh, that's not like a hard one. Um, mm. Yeah, I think what I'm learning from my experience is that you have to do your homework. Um, you have to look um, internally first, personally get that straight before you start, right? Cause it's almost like um, with social media, it's really easy to just be like, oh yes, this is the good thing. Like I'm gonna hit share, rah, rah, right? But if you haven't read the article right. all the way through um, and you haven't reflected on what you've read um, and maybe even gone that next step of um, practicing it yourself, then you're really not ready to bring it to other people. Um, and then I think you have to bring people along slowly. I'm definitely learning that in my slow birding work too. There are facets of, of the slow birding practice that are edgy for people. Hmm. Just sitting in place is edgy. Um, if I ask you to sit in place, and relax your shoulders. All of a sudden, you're like, that's not burning. That's something else, right? And that's edgy for some people. And I think some of these things 
are edgy for people. And so you have to watch for those edges with your team, um, with whatever organization you're working in, um, the board that you're sitting on. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you bring folks along? And I know it can't always be slow, but how, yeah, how do we do this in a way that we're recognizing that this is, this is vulnerable work, it's edgy work. Um, it means, you know, admitting that we're not including everybody and that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. It's also admitting that we don't know how to do it, but there are people out there that are doing this work that have learned some things that we can be like, Ooh, I don't have to fall down that set of stairs. I don't have to like, I, there's other folks that are like, Ooh, this is, this is what will, will help you make these first few steps. So again, I think that goes back to that partnership piece and really truly listening to other folks who have experience in these areas, um, who experience it as they're trying to navigate connecting with nature. Um, yeah, believing people. One of the things that birdability teaches is like one of the first things in, in leading an accessible bird walk is when somebody, um, identifies a bird, um, is to believe them, right? When someone comes to you and says, well, your walks aren't super accessible because like, you know, I can't park there there's no parking for me as a disabled person. Or the two big things that are really important for me um, are bathrooms and water. Like if I can't access those things, or um, I didn't even know how to get to that site. I mean, how many trip things have you read where it's like, well, you know, just find it on the map for yourself. There's certain things that are missing that are barriers to people. And if we don't listen to people talk about those barriers or even ask them, hmm. like, what are the barriers to you participating or to our partners that have hold some of this knowledge? What are the barriers to the folks in your community from, from accessing these trails, from accessing bird outings, whatever it is? That's hard. Yeah, it's hard and it's, it's a lot of work, but it's important work, right? Oh, it's so good. It's so, it is so, it is so good. Um, again, like I get excited about this when I go back to thinking about how many people have sent me notes, um, or just said plain out, like the whole permission thing just kind of blows my mind. I'm like, who's Mm -hmm. the gatekeeper on this? Like there's gate, you feel like there's gatekeep. Somebody is telling you that you can't and you needed permission. Oh, that's just heartbreaking, right? Nature's right there. Right. Uh, we shouldn't be telling anybody how to connect with. We should be facilitating those connections in a way that bring joy and yeah. further connection and, and curiosity. Yeah, thank you. That was that was great. I mean, that part right there was just like mm. a fangirl moment of that thought for sure. Mm. Um, I I guess I, I want to ask you more about slow birding, um, just because it seems like there's both such an opportunity for people to get into birding. Mm. Like, even myself, like I I have never thought about birding. I'm not one of the birding 
murder. You just said it. No, no. I have, I look at birds. So I guess I'm a birder. Um, mm. But I really like the idea of slow burning. Um, mm. I, I just love the mindfulness and like the slowing down of it, especially in a society that like pushes us to like see everything, catch everything, look here, go there. Um, yeah. So I guess my question to you, right? Like we don't need you to be out with me in nature to go slow burning. Anyone can slow burn. Anyone and everyone can do it. So anyone out there that's like, how do I do this? Like, what, where do I begin? Yeah. Where's the starting point? Yeah. Um, Pay attention. I think the first thing is just pay attention to those moments when you feel that little spark or that zing, um, when you are connecting with birds. I think that's like the very, what, what is happening? And then like zoom out on that, like what just happened and why did this feel so good? Uh, and then try to create those moments for yourself. So for me, slow birding really, uh, birding shifted for me when I stopped moving, (laughs) when I stopped trying to walk and cover a lot of ground and, and write all the birds down. Um, and so I think, you know, the next piece is, is to try that, right? Is to try staying in one place or try sitting at your window for 20 minutes and just noticing what's outside. I think the other piece is changing your intention. And I think this is where that, pe- that, that thing of people being like, well, I'm not a birder. Mm-hmm. Uh, shifting your, most people think birders know a lot. They know everything there is to know about birds. And really that's a process, an arc, a lot of time spent trying to get to know birds and assemble your resources and all kinds of things like that. Um, But really it's about just developing some skills, opening up your senses, um, looking in a different way. What if you sat and you looked at birds just to notice things about them rather than to identify them? Mm. How would that shift? So if you set different intentions, I think that starts to change how you connect and the depth, it opens up this opportunity to connect on a much deeper level. For experienced birders, I, I often challenge them to let go of something. Um, Try letting go of going out for the day and having a target bird. Like this is the bird I wanna see. I know they're in the area, right? Cause what ends up happening a lot of times, like if you don't see that bird, how do you feel? Right, right, you get bummed. Yeah. It's like this, (laughs) right? I had a great day in nature, but yeah, let's like, let's shift away from that. So, you know, I I think for anyone, whether you're a birder or not, what is it, that question about what is it that you value about the time that you spend in nature? What am I getting out of it? And how do I feel afterwards? And then as you develop a practice of connecting, whether it's with birds or with, or, you know, trees or 
insects or mosses or, or whatever it is, how do I want to feel after choosing to spend time outside, you know, noticing these things or being in nature? Um, how do I want to feel? And I think that then, you know, informs your practice. I keep saying practice too. This is the other thing that's shifted for me is that slow burning is a practice. Mm. It's not, I don't think of it as a hobby. I have to think about that some more. Because <laughs> it's it it becomes something else. It really has. It's become for me, it's become a way, a path to wellness. Um, it's also become a path to connecting with the land in a different way that's much more relational than it is object, me object, objectifying nature. Oh my gosh. Don't. <laughs> right. Right. It's an birding is like right. birding, traditional birding is like, I, that's an object for me to look at, or it's an object for me to study, or it's an object for me to uh, gather data on. Right. We're always objectifying things. And I think the arc of my slow burning practices brought me to this other place of being in relation with the land. Right. And I think that has the power to change a lot personally, professionally, and I mean, regionally, community wise, like how we think about how do we connect with more people and get them to care about the land um so that we can tackle these big things like climate change and biodiversity loss you, you we have to help people thread that personal piece through it and what's personal for me is not going to be personal for somebody else but like i i think a true conservationist can facilitate that relationship mm -hmm. with the land with the birds, with the moss, with the salamanders, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have anything to add to that. That was pretty insightful mm. and great. And just, yeah, the objectification of nature as like a hobby. I love mm. that you tie it into like this practice of like, you know, at its core, what you're saying is be outside, <laughs> enjoy sitting around and looking and birds will show themselves to you and, and mm. experience that right um and it, what i really love is that by using you know or by like naming this different form of practice it naturally becomes more inclusive and accessible right it's that when we made it so extractive when we made it this objectifying hobby we started limiting a lot of people from that enjoyment mm. and how sad that is right like I, yeah again i am coming into this as such a non-birder apparently also birder according to what you were saying <laughs> but yes it's the, there. the second option just sounds a lot more meaningful to me and, and mm. kind of what i want to do right i also this is not necessarily relevant but i in my head, when I think of birders, I think of them as good whistlers because they always can imitate birds. I can't whistle. So the whole time I'm always so like, like oh. you know. what'd you say? You're like, so I don't fit in. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. I don't know how to do that. How do I talk to the birds? If I can't whistle, I guess I don't talk to the birds. But what mm -hmm. you're doing is like, no, you, by just being there with it in a relationship aspect, you're, you're in it, you're doing it. Yes, you are. And I think, you know, wow, gosh, like the other piece to that is, is that in order to fit in, I need to do it this way. Right. And so everything that we see in the birding world and maybe even everything that we see in. Uh, right, like um, the conservation world, it, there's this perception of having to do it this one way. Yes. Or there's a mainstream way to do it. Right. And so you don't feel like you fit into that. Gosh, nature and birds are they're really for everyone. Oh, this is where I just like having that realization, it's an awakening to realize that there are people that feel like they're not included. We have these bird walks. Come out on these bird walks. There's one every month. It'll be great, right? You'll love it. There's all these people there, right? And you should just come. There's so much going on in that person's head that you just invited that is is like the doubting and the I don't really belong and I don't have binoculars and I don't even know where that is and what if I show up and I don't know anybody and um what if I show up and nobody else shows up and or, gosh all of those things or I can't because I you know I whatever it is like what are all those barriers how do we just decrease just decrease one let's just pick one at a time and just start hacking away at it I, I love it. I am mm. like, oh, this is this is great. So when we think of five years ahead, oh. right? What is your hope to be with slow birding? And what about mm. you personally too? Like what do you see the ideal self and slow birding in five years? So in in five years, I really hope that slow birding and other types of birding are not looked on as weird or different or uh or don't set themselves up to be that same thing that mainstream birding is right um i would like to see slow birding Right now, it's like pushing into all these other different places, right? So it started off as really being able to experience and know birds beyond identification. And then it started to go into this wellness place, which is really wonderful. And I'm enjoying exploring that more. Um, and then there's this other piece, which is more this um, relational, um, spiritual piece, if you will right because people start to connect to the land they become they come in relationship with the land um and that's a very spiritual thing for some people i i would like slow burning practice to metamorphose through all of that and just be open i want to see how people take it and make it their own right like take it and make it your own Right? Whatever that means for you, if, if it's really just opening a door and giving people permission to connect with birds in a way that's 
comfortable and less pressure and all of that, that then, then I've done it. We're good. Five years. Um, personally, I want to see where this pushes me in terms of how I think about my relationship with the land. Um, you and I have talked about this um, in other conversations about thinking about how conservation has been seen through this very white lens. Mm -hmm. um, also this lens of ownership, of um, objectification of the land, of its resources. Mm -hmm. um, I, I struggle, I am struggling and it's uncomfortable to think about how we've gone about conserving land, even in Vermont. I think about the wildlife refuge up where I live in Northwestern Vermont and how this is the place of the Abenaki people and how in order to make a wildlife refuge, we pushed a lot of people off of that land. Mm -hmm. And we're still striving to repair that relationship with the people and with the land itself. Um, I think about how I need to shift my thinking around what sustainability means and really is talking about sustainability just a way for us to say that we can still take what we want from the land. Mm -hmm. So in five years, I hope I'm still on that path. Uh, to a deeper relationship and that I'm able to communicate my experience with other people so that they can have a deeper relationship as well and feel comfortable in that, in having that edgy, vulnerable experience of connecting with land and wildlife in that way. Mm. That was great. Um, yeah, five years. Well, I, I will check in in five years and see where you're at. <laughs> you, were at you might have to come out into the woods and find me, I think. More time, I more it. time in the woods. I know. I do I love the just naming again, you know, the role that conservation has played um, in just becoming this very toxic gatekeeper to something that's mm -hmm. just inherently within everyone, right? And the need for us to transform the way we look at environmentalism into more intersectional, right? Just like mm -hmm. it, we are part of it. We have and should have access, feel welcome, no matter who you are, right? Or um, where you come from type of thing. And, and I really love and appreciate the fact that you, you know, you're on this path to like better yourself and understand what that looks like, right? Because I mm. even whether you fall into one category or the not or the other one, um, we benefit to a certain extent from that gatekeeping structure. But I think more and more we're recognizing that it's not sustainable. It's not what we actually should be doing as humans, and, and hopeful that people pick up on that. Yeah, I also love you know like the comment on what it means to be an environmentalist or a conservationist or saying like bird or like you should do this you should be this like mainstream and i'm like you like nature you probably do you drink water you probably breathe air 
you're there. We did it. <laughs> like yeah. welcome to the club, right? And like really taking away all these pretentious like badges of honor of like who is the best conservationist, who is the best environmentalist. Yeah. Really like start changing the narrative that like we all are. We're human mm -hmm. part of it, right? So and that there's many angles as to how we come about it. Um yeah, so it's telling those stories too, right? Like, I think that's the other piece is um, highlighting work from people that that are different ways of knowing, are different ways of um, protecting land, caring for land, right? Being a caretaker um, of of connection. Just keep seeking out stories different from our own. Yeah, and different yeah. from the, the the traditional pathway. Oh my gosh, I think about that so much in terms of land conservation. We're always telling that same story, and mm -hmm. where are those other ones um, that maybe are a little bit more edgy, a little bit more uncomfortable? Mm, let's tell those two. Just get well, those I out there. The reason why we originally connected was me just shaming and saying that I do not care about Aldo Leopold. And I think that's a very controversial stance mm. <laughs> to those of you that are not, you know, part of that group that were just educated with Aldo Leopold as the godfather of conservation. Yeah. I, I absolutely hated that because I never saw myself in Aldo Leopold. I mm -hmm. didn't understand what Wisconsin was, right? Like I've never been there, sorry. So, then you know evolving and meeting other people that are like yeah this is what i like this is how i can use it wow look at that paying attention to that one little right that little thing you were asking me you know before how to start slow burning i and you bringing up all the leopold there was something about that his right his readings writings being taught to you that just it just is like sandpaper right or like something gritty there was something there it's pay attention to those things too. pay attention to when it gets uncomfortable what was uncomfortable for me that that also became a big part of slow birding was the lack of women within you know the the birding community and especially women in leadership roles so where are all the women and where are their stories and so those little you know inklings those uncomfortable um things that rub you the wrong way or just it's like a burr right find that pick at that pull that apart ask questions about it right talk to other people about it because i think it leads you to this whole new space and, and a whole new awareness well, Bridget, thank you so much for the conversation. This has been a delight as always. <sighs> Same uh, here. I want to, so resources that you shared. So you talked about birdability, right? Yeah. For people to check out. Um, they can, people can find you online, right? Where, how yeah. You can find me if you type in bird diva and you'll find me. So I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. My website is birddiva.com. I love questions. I love like audio snippets, like send me your wonderings. Um, and that's where you'll find me talking about some of the courses um, and workshops that I offer um, as well. And um, yeah, I'm always learning. Um, 
always, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to be open to all of these ways of knowing and ways of experiencing and connecting in nature. So I love people's stories as well. So I'm happy to listen to other people's stories too. That's great. And the same goes for, you know, the Nature Conservancy in Vermont. My name is Ariana Cano Gomez. You can find our information online. We are one of those organizations that we want to hear it. We want to change. We want to, you know, really learn and be on the same path mm. as Bridget. So this is also naming that I'm here, um, open and welcoming to all for us to connect, talk about nature, go out in nature and just learn um, as we grow within our own environment. So mm. with that, I think, I think that's it. You've been listening to Green Mountain Disability Stories, a series of conversations by, with, and for Vermonters with disabilities. We've been talking and listening to Experiences with Disability in Vermont, the Green Mountain State. The music for our show is by Soul June, an audio library release. This show is a production of the Center on Disability and Community Inclusion at the University of Vermont. You can find out more about the center by visiting go.uvm.edu slash cdci. Thanks for listening.